0: Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 17, Mission Control and Mars Curiosity. I'm your host, John Mulnix, and I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can also catch me on my other podcast, The Space Shot. This month's episode is coming out later because I had an unfortunate coffee accident with my laptop, which put me way behind schedule. In this episode, you're going to hear my conversation with Sarah Lamb, a doctoral student at Northern Arizona University. We chat about curiosity and her experience as a science communicator. But up first, we've got Jim Remar back on the show to talk to us about SpaceWorks completing the historic Moker restoration. Let's dive into that chat. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for power descent. Retro? Go. go. Fido? Go. Guidance? Go. Control? Go. Telcom? Go. GNC? Go. Ecom? Go. Surgeon? Go. Capcom, we're go for power descent. Today, we've got Jim Remar, the president and CEO of the Cosmosphere, back on to talk to us about his experience at Johnson Space Center with the return of the Moker consoles to their home. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time, especially it's a, it's kind of crunch time here with the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. So we're going to dive right in the mocha restoration was about an 18 month project almost two years you know talk a little bit about what the end of the project means and how it was when you got to johnson space center and were able to see the consoles back in mission control well
1: first it was an honor to be involved to play a role in the the mocha restoration project um overall uh, it is probably one of the the top three or four projects the cosmosphere has been involved in, um, just because of the historic significance uh, of the moker of which many consider to be the the cathedral to man early manned space exploration. Um, so, from that perspective, um, an incredible opportunity. It was sort of bittersweet, almost <laughs> like sending your your kid off to college. Um, yeah. When the project came to an end, um, but when we walked into the moker for the first time, um, and and seeing it in its its completed state, um, quite honestly, a game of goosebumps. It, it it was incredible, and the the, the entire restoration team uh, did an absolutely phenomenal job. Um, a lot of people associate the consoles with the moker um but the project was so much more it was taking that historic space and really reviving it um taking something that had become dilapidated and returning it to as it was um during its its use um especially its use during the apollo era and to see the the controllers especially gene kranz go in there and um see their eyes almost tear up um was amazing and uh it it, it's a bit surreal to to know you played a role in in a project of of such historic magnitude um i'm at a loss for words (laughs) as you can tell it it was uh it it was just um uh something i will never forget and and a highlight um for me personally well, it's definitely
0: one of those once in a lifetime opportunities i mean the uh, the restoration it was literally from the carpet to the consoles everything was put back to its apollo era glory so you know knowing that it's been preserved for future generations is just it, it, i think it's inspiring that you know all the work that spaceworks did to get the consoles back to where you know where they looked during apollo is just it's awesome
1: <laughs> yeah it was it, loss for words too <laughs> yeah right and and the the measures that the restoration team took to to ensure authenticity as you said the carpet the the wallpaper the ceiling tiles uh, the the seats in the the visitor viewing room all of, of those things all of those components um, were restored exactly as they were um, during their use uh, and and to, to sit in the viewing room and to look down onto the mocher. Um, prior to the restoration, it was uh, sort of mundane. I mean, it, it, you, did, you didn't you did have any appreciation for what took place mm-hmm. in that room. Now with the restoration, the way the room comes to life and through the, the visitor viewing experience, uh, a visitor leaves knowing that they just saw one of the, the the special iconic areas um, related to this country and, and our our country's space initiatives. Well, I I couldn't agree more. And I I was
0: at Johnson Space Center last in twenty seven or twenty sixteen uh, before the restoration had taken place, and I saw the consoles in their previous state, and it is. It's there's no comparison between the two, so I'm excited to get back to uh, JSC to see them in their finished state. Absolutely.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Jim, you know it, it is bittersweet. You, you've sent the Moker kids off to college, as it were. <laughs> um, you know what's next? SpaceWorks isn't an empty
1: nester, so yeah, there's, there's right. going to be
0: stuff going on.
1: Uh, yeah, fortunately, uh, uh, they aren't empty nesters. Um, right now, we're we're. Finishing up our uh, NASA uh, Team Two traveling exhibit um, this month, uh, the the team will be heading out to various sites to to install the the Team Two exhibit, which actually um, talks about the the history of of mission control, past, present, and future, and and what it takes and means today to to be a mission controller. Um, so we'll be working on that. Um, hopefully. Uh, late summer, early fall, we'll get uh, the, the Skylab 4 command module. Um, it's presently uh, Uvar-Hazy undergoing conservation. Uh, it'll be sent here. and We'll build the display case uh, for it for the Oklahoma History Center uh, down in Oklahoma City. Um, we'll also be reconfiguring um, our shuttle simulator used in camps. NASA uh, awesome. after- NASA retired shuttle in 2011. We we continue to fly shuttle a little longer, uh, <laughs> but uh, by by next year, 2020 camp season, uh, we'll, we'll be uh, current again um, with some type of capsule configuration. So the team will be doing that. And then we'll also be working on uh, some of the uh, changes to the museum. Um, we're going to be putting in a uh, New kids' discovery area uh, down in the museum and redoing the intro to the museum. So Spaceworks will have some involvement with that. And then we're looking at putting uh, some smaller uh, traveling exhibits together um, that we can get out onto the road and send to various locales. So um, no shortage of work. That's good.
0: (laughs) on the incredible work that they do, you know, the the traveling exhibits. I'm really excited about that cuz it can really share, you know, the, the what's special about the cosmosphere with more people. So, absolutely. Well, Jim, thank you very much for coming on. We'll have you on again in the future and look forward to seeing you out there for the uh, 50th anniversary of Apollo 11.
1: Well, unfortunately, I'm going to be in D.C. Uh, oh so no! I'll, yeah, I'll be out. <laughs> uh, I'll be out at the uh, National Mall um, for the 50th celebration out there. So yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have fun with that and get lots I of good will. pictures. <laughs> all right, sounds good. Thanks.
1: Okay, all flight controllers, go now. Go for landing. Retro. Go. I Go. Guidance. Go. Control. 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 Go. PC. Go. 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 Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're a go for landing. Over.
0: Next up, we've got Carla with some news about what's going on at the Cosmosphere. There's great family activities this summer as we approach the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, so be sure to check out the show notes for links to everything we've spoken about today. We've got Carla back on the podcast to talk to us about what's going on in July here at the Cosmosphere. It's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, so naturally there is no shortage of events. Carla, what does the Cosmosphere have going on?
2: Well, like you said, John, we have a whole lot to offer for uh, actually the rest of the summer, quite honestly, Uh, but especially the week of the anniversary. So I might start there perfect fill you in on the things that are happening specifically to celebrate the anniversary so we'll begin on monday july 15th with a presentation and um, film screening with author rick houston so rick houston is the co-author of go flight the unsung heroes of mission control and he's going to come in and do a book discussion at six o'clock in our planetarium um, about his writing of that book and then he also was a producer and consultant for the documentary film called Mission Control: The Unsung Heroes of Apollo. Um, so he'll talk about working on that film, and then we'll screen that film. And following all of that, he will uh, meet guests and sign books. And the tickets to that event are only five dollars plus tax. They are on sale already, and uh, the best way to purchase those tickets in advance is to call our box office at six two zero. Six six five nine three one two. Then on Tuesday, the 16th, we're going to participate in the um, U.S. Space and Rocket Center's global rocket launch world record attempt. So from 10 to 2 o'clock in our lobby, we'll have paper stomp rockets for folks to build and then launch. And after they launch it, they'll re- just record their name and the number of rockets that they launched. And we will turn that in to help um, hopefully set a world record that day. Uh, That that, sounds like a lot of fun. It it should be. And if you go on to their website, you'll see that there are lots and lots of places participating in this. So I don't think that we'll have too much trouble reaching that record, but we're more than happy to help um, (laughs) here at the Cosmosphere. So then later that (laughs) night, At 6.30, we're going to have a presentation from a longtime volunteer of ours. His name is Paul Lytle, and the name of this is called You Are There. So Paul is going to take us back in time 50 years ago to the July 1969 as the U.S. and quite honestly, the world is watching the U.S. launch itself into the record books. So Paul is going to be using historic footage, you know, the Walter Cronkite news piece, some of the launch footage. Um, It's going to be a really fantastic presentation. And for those of us that weren't necessarily alive to see it, it'll be a great way to feel like we were there.
0: That sounds really cool, too. I I love being able to watch the old historic uh, news footage from that time. It's just so incredible how many people literally stopped what they were doing and the the entire world was watching.
2: Absolutely. And I think you can kind of um, relate to this, too, John. You know, for folks of a certain age, we don't have this national moment of pride where we um, are all watching the same thing, maybe until maybe just recently the World Cup here this last weekend uh but you know our our collective memories for the younger generation are things like 9-11 and it's it's not really a happy memory for us where we were all collectively watching something so to think about uh the moon landing and and how many people across the world were tuned in it is pretty amazing
0: definitely and okay. you know hopefully hopefully we can have more uh more events like that in the future and i think absolutely. that's what's really inspiring about apollo is it's it's a reminder of all of the incredible you know good things we can accomplish if we set our minds to something
2: absolutely Then on Thursday that week, John, on the 18th, we're going to have our Coffee at the Cosmo, which is our regular third Thursday event. But this one will be specifically centered um, on the moon landing. It's called We Choose to Go to the Moon, and Shannon Wetzel, our curator, will be offering that presentation. That is free and open to the public. And then immediately following Coffee at the Cosmo, we're going to have an Opera Kansas performance. So Opera Kansas is a group out of Wichita. They're going to be performing some popular music. That's all moon-themed songs. (laughs) So that happens at 10.30 in our lobby, again, free and open to the public. And then on that Saturday, the 20th, so the big anniversary day, we have several things happening. It also falls on our Space Out Saturday, our third Saturday event. So from 10 to 1 in our lobby, we'll offer a number of hands-on, kind of younger-aged, family-friendly activities uh, children can learn about the spacesuit construction and then build or, uh, excuse me, construct their own spacesuit or pieces of a spacesuit. Then we're going to have guided tours from docents every hour on the hour from 11 to 4. The even hour tours that day on the 20th will be kind of full museum, full collection. The odd hour tours will be more of an Apollo 11 and Apollo era artifact um, centered. It does require Hall of Space admission, um, but if you're a Reno County resident, of course that's free for you. And then at In the planetarium at 12 and 2, we're going to be screening a brand new Smithsonian documentary that became available to us because we are a Smithsonian affiliate. It's called The Day We Walked on the Moon. So this, again, is shown at 12 and 2. It is completely free, but there is limitations on the seating. So it is a first come first serve basis. That
0: sounds like a lot of fun. I wish I was out there on Saturday.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And if you can't catch it at 12 or two, it's actually the documentary that we're going to be showing later that night at our big event of the summer is what we're saying, landing on the lawn. So this is our big free community event. It's happening from six to 1130 on the community college Hutchinson community college lawn, just north of our Cosmosphere building. It'll have moons. and space-themed activities from a number of community organizations. Of course, our science educators will all be out there doing demonstrations and having activities for children and families to participate in And then after dark, we'll be showing both the 1969 moon landing footage and that documentary I mentioned earlier, the day we walked on the moon on a giant outdoor screen, And then we will be offering a moon and planet observing with our educators as well as our huge sixteen inch diameter telescope. So again get some great views. Yeah, absolutely. There'll be some planets to look at, some great stars to look at. The moon does rise pretty late that night, so if you want to see it you have to hang out with us for a while. <laughs> um, but again, that event is from 6 to 11:30, completely free, open to the public. We'll have water, we'll have um food truck vendors and even an adult beverage vendor. So,
0: that sounds like a blast.
2: No pun intended.
0: <laughs> I, I was gonna leave the the uh, you calling out the dad joke to uh, to you. So oh, okay.
2: or pun intended. <laughs> I,
0: I, uh, I I try my best with the uh, dad jokes and puns. So I like I do it again.
2: I I like I enjoy a good pun.
0: <laughs> well, Carla, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I'm looking forward to having you on next time.
2: Absolutely. I might tell folks too, John, that we have a lot of things going through the summer that if you look at our website, we have um, new exhibits. We have a new film, obviously. We have a NASA exhibit currently in the house. We're offering extended summer hours. There's just a lot going on. So I highly encourage folks to visit our website and look at the Apollo 50th specific page if you click up at the top on the one of those tabs up there it's news and events right under there you'll see Apollo 50 and that has the full listing of everything including all of these events I just mentioned and the artifacts that are in Cosmosphere Collection.
0: Well and I'll make sure that's in the show notes uh, for this episode so just check those if you're interested. Wonderful we appreciate that. Awesome thanks Carlo we'll talk to you next time.
2: Thanks, John. Bye-bye.
0: Now, it's time for our long-overdue chat with Sarah Lamb. We got into some technical talk about what she did with the Curiosity Rover team and her experience with science communication. We're go for that science chat. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Lamb. She's a student in the doctoral program at Northern Arizona University. She graduated from Kansas State University and majored in chemistry, geology, and geography – She's also been an intern on the KimCam team for the Curiosity Rover. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks, John, for having me.
0: So let's start off with a little bit about your background. What made you want to get involved with chemistry, geology, and geography? That's, that's a lot of science there, and I think probably way more than I've had in my lifetime for about a year for you.
3: When I was in high school, I was really inspired by the Cassini Project, and I wanted to work for NASA. I then had to decide between science and engineering. I decided on science. And then when I was in high school as a junior and senior, I was also a full-time community college student. I actually graduated with an associate's degree the same weekend as my high school graduation. I then started at K-State as a junior, but I was only 18 years old. And I knew that I was going to go to grad school eventually so I might as well take four years at K-State to really prepare myself for grad school. That's how I decided on chemistry and geology is because I knew I couldn't be a full-time student with just one degree. I chose chemistry because I was 18 years old. I didn't really think it through much. I just thought the <laughs> gas giants are they can be explained with chemistry and then the rocky plants can be explained with geology. So if I do both degrees, then I can cover the whole solar system and be okay with whatever NASA would throw at me if I eventually worked for them. Nice. Even at 18, I mean, it wasn't the most fun, like it wasn't the most solid reasoning, but it actually ended up working pretty well.
0: I, I would think so.
3: <laughs> and then after my first year, I realized that even with the two degrees, I still would have a hard time being a full-time student. So I was just going to pick up a GIS certificate. So I started taking mapping classes and eventually I realized if I just took a few more classes, I could get that third major.
0: Just go for the trifecta. I don't think there's anything wrong with that well, and that. That really gave you a great background for your doctoral work. What, what are you exa- what are you studying right now?
3: Broadly speaking, I'm studying chemical variations in Gale Crater with the Curiosity rover. Right now, I'm studying Rubin Ridge, which used to be called Hematite Ridge, which is an iron oxide mineral. And the reason this ridge was so special is from orbit, we could tell that it was both erosion resistant and theoretically full of hematite. And we got there. We didn't find as much hematite as expected. So I'm trying to explain... Where, like why we were getting those signals on orbit, but also what is a good Earth analog to explain this ridge on Mars?
0: Well, what does that ridge on Mars tell us about the past history of the planet?
3: I think that's still being hotly debated, honestly. They know that at least that crater held a lake at one point. So they're trying to decide what point in Mars history the lake was still on that ridge and what conditions were forming the ridge. And if there was any groundwater that came over the ridge afterwards and might have changed it from what it was previously.
0: Well, now this is, um, is this related then to the work that you did as an intern uh, for the Curiosity rover?
3: Um, they're slightly different. So what I did as an intern is I would track the manganese abundance throughout the traverse. And manganese is a redox indicator. So if we find high quantities of manganese, it means that there was a highly oxidizing conditions in that area at one point. So it's kind of related in that sense of just the redox state. So Vera Ribbon Ridge with its hematite, it would have to have been at least somewhat oxidizing. But I am no longer tracking the manganese.
0: And for oxidizing, exactly. Could you just explain that a little bit more? Is it something to do with how water would be present on the surface or the atmosphere was at one point oxidizing on Mars? Can you go into a little bit more detail?
3: Yeah. So specifically for an oxidizing environment, you just need a way to lose electrons. And for manganese to concentrate the way it does, it needs highly oxidizing conditions and water. What we're currently debating throughout the team is, what was that electron acceptor? The current theory on the team is that Mars had a more oxidizing atmosphere in the past, and that oxygen in that atmosphere would have been the electron acceptor.
0: So closer to what we've got here on Earth then? or
3: Yeah, it should have been much closer to what we have on Earth now. While the oxygen in the atmosphere might not be the only electron acceptor, it's the most likely at this current state from the knowledge we know. There's been other theories thrown around, but this one seems the most likely with what we currently know.
0: And is this, you know, the, when you're looking at these types of um, features on the surface of Mars, is this something that you were able to gain information from the Kim Cam then? Or were you u- utilizing other instruments on the Curiosity rover?
3: I was mostly using KimCam to study these manganese minerals, since that was the team that was funding me at the time. Right now, through my grad program, I can actually work with any instrument.
0: So that probably gives you a lot broader look at the surface of Mars than just because you're not limited to the one uh, instrument on Curiosity.
3: Yes, it's really opened up a lot of doors. And it's nice to check between instruments of do they all have the same reading and there would be reasons why they wouldn't get the same reading and that's nice to know like where those variations come from
0: interesting so for curiosity i mean can you talk a little bit more about those different systems that or, you know different uh, instruments on the rover that you're utilizing right now as a doctoral student
3: um, yeah, so I'm using APXS, which is the Alpha Particle X-ray Spectrometer. And that also looks at chemical composition like ChemCam. So I use that one to also check the environment. Uh, we use MOLLE, which is the hand lens on board. It's on the arm of Curiosity. I'm using that to look at textures of rocks. We're trying to see if certain textures have certain chemical signals or if it's just a plain rock. Um, We are also using MassCam. MassCam can do multi-spectral imaging too, which can help with some of the chemical or mineralogy. And then the last one that we are using is, or the last main one we are using is KIMMin. KIMMin is an x-ray diffraction, and it can also tell us mineralogy. That one we've, only have about three drill holes in Vera Rubin Ridge. And that's not a lot of data to go off of, but it's what we have to just do.
0: So, drill holes. I know, uh, you know, the Curiosity rover does essentially have a laser on it. Um, talk a little bit about how Curiosity uses, or can you talk a little bit about how Curiosity uses uh, that laser to drill holes and then analyze, you know, what's inside those rocks?
3: Yeah. Cam Cam is a high powered laser and it will vaporize just little minuscule flecks off of a rock and just a burn a hole in it. It's actually not a large spot size. It's only a few millimeters. Not even that. I think it's like less than one millimeter across. Once KimCam Kim vaporizes that rock, it turns into plasma, this very high energy. And as it's cooling down, it will release a light. That light can be picked up by our spectrometers. And we can tell what wavelengths are inside of that light. And that is how we tell the chemical composition of a rock.
0: Well, it's like the same thing where when, you know, astronomers are looking at distant stars or exoplanets, they're able to use that spectrum or the, you know, the spectra um, to see what's in those atmospheres. So it's a similar process, uh, which is just interesting that all of these basic principles that, you know, you learn in school, you're still able to apply those, whether you're on Mars or going to an exoplanet, which is really cool. What's something that's one of your favorite parts of the mission that, you know, might be overlooked by everybody else or that's just, you know, your personal favorite?
3: So really early on in the mission, before I was even on the team, they found Opal. And I was really interested in that just because I can actually find Opal here in Western Kansas. So that was really interesting to me.
0: That really is cool.
3: I think that part got overlooked because there was an even more interesting mineral that was found near it. I forget what that name of the mineral was, but it was really high silica and that was just groundbreaking for them to find that. So I think the opal part mostly got overlooked, but that was the part that really, that I really, I think attached to just because I remember learning about these opals in Western Kansas and I was determined to find them. And it took a few hours because we didn't actually know where we were going. And we just stumbled upon, like, this old dirt road that was just a dead end. And there was just opals everywhere on it.
0: Oh, that is cool. See, for me, I I actually have a background in jewelry. I was a professional jeweler for 15 years almost. Or I still am a professional jeweler. I do it on the side. Um, So, no, I I had no clue that Curiosity actually found opal on Mars. So that is really cool. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I don't think it's, like... The opal you'll put in jewelry, but it's the other sure. type.
0: Exactly. Yeah, no, I've still, I mean, just it's interesting that it's on the surface of another planet. That's a th- really cool. Yeah. So, you know, Sarah, you, you're still, how many years do you have left then for school before you finish up with your doctorate?
3: Um, well, PhDs are slightly different than your bachelor's. It's harder to estimate. Sure. But anywhere between three and five years.
0: Where, where do you hope to go after graduating?
3: So I know this is a little atypical. Most people say they want to go into academia, but I actually really want to end up at a national lab. So either Jet Propulsion Lab or go back to Los Alamos National Lab. Those would be the top two I'm shooting for. But I think I'd be happy at pretty much any national lab.
0: Well, and why a national lab versus like academia? Like what, what's the difference? What, you know What makes it more appealing to you?
3: Um, honestly, I don't really find enjoyment in teaching, which I know sounds very odd because I, I do like doing outreach, which is its own form of teaching, but I guess I don't want teaching to be like my main thing where you have to prepare three lectures a week for a full semester and then all the grading and all the like issues that come with having students. And I think I kind of like being pretty closed off and like, I do my research and I go home. Because academia is definitely not a, f- it's much more than just 40 hours a week.
0: Yeah. Well, there's more demands just on teachers, like you were saying. It's just, it's it takes time away from people, you know, wanting to do research, which is one of the benefits of all of the national laboratories that we have.
3: Yeah. And that's what I mostly want to do is just do research.
0: Well, for the national labs too, there's so many innovations and different Things that we've discovered, you know, that have come out of Los Alamos, that have come out of these different facilities. Even the International Space Station is a national laboratory. So I think it's something that's really important for people to want to work on. Yeah. So, Sarah, you mentioned that you do uh, outreach and, you know, checking out your solar system ambassadors page. You've done a lot of different events um, from you know, speaking at the Cosmosphere to high schools, talking about the Curiosity mission. Um, Can you talk a little bit about uh, the outreach that you do, whether it's with schools, institutions, or through like social media?
3: It started pretty small to begin with. I was asked to speak at the Galaxy Forum at the Cosmosphere in 2017 because they learned that I just finished an internship with Uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory. And that's how it started. And then they asked me, would I do another one for them at, I think it was the Topeka Space Day, and it was aimed at Girl Scouts between the grades of fourth and eighth. And that's when I did it the second time. And for that one, because I knew I had a younger audience, I tried to do something extremely special. But at the same time, I'm a college student, I don't have a ton of money to spend on this. And I came up with this design. It's a string rover. And when you pull all of the strings apart from the corners, it forms a 3D version of the string rover, or of Curiosity. It's the correct dimensions. And then I got a cardboard box that was roughly the same size as Kim Cam, covered in silver duct tape. And then I got two... um, Yeah, two yardsticks plus an extra ruler. And I got those to be the correct height. So when you put the box on top, it stood as high as Curiosity did. And that's pretty much what started the outreach.
0: Well, that's, you know, those are great things to be able to engage with people is having a prop to help them, you know, visualize the dimensions of a spacecraft or, you know, involving little kids with cool projects like that. So that's that's really cool. And then what what did that you know, what did that lead to once you started doing more outreach work?
3: Well, that specifically led to uh, me deciding that I wanted to do outreach in northwest Kansas my last semester of K-State. And that last semester was very special because I worked it out where all of my classes were online. <laughs> so I could do them for anywhere. Nice. And I decided that I was going to speak to as many students in Northwest Kansas as possible. And the reason I chose that was literally because of money. My parents live in town, so I didn't have to like pay for a hotel or anything like that.
0: That's a that's a good constraint to have.
3: <laughs> yeah. I went to my old middle school, my old high school. Some of those teachers were still there. Some of the old principals were there and they were happy to have me back and speaking to them. And they said, Just being local was really important for those students to connect with.
0: Well, they're able to see somebody that's actually doing work in a field. I think it makes science, you know, the STEM fields a little bit more. It brings it brings that home. It's not just these abstract ideas and textbooks. You're actually able to relate what you learned in school to these kids. And I think it's a great example for for everybody, you know, from basically kindergarten on up.
3: At the end, I was only able to speak. I think to fifth grade and up to seniors in high school, but I counted. Plus, there was a few other events, but I spoke to about ten percent of my hometown, like over the course of about one and a half months.
0: That's a lot of. And that was that's like, a lot of work.
3: <laughs> that was the first real time I did that many events back to back. The second time was actually March of this year. I was coming back from Arizona. I had a science conference and it was also spring break. So I decided to line up about 12 talks for outreach and then two science conferences in a whole two week span. I hit high schools. I spoke to college classes. I spoke to the Cosmosphere. I was just all over the state. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a lot of fun, though. I think that's uh, probably a cool way to spend uh, spring break. Most people probably don't do anything anywhere near that academically rigorous. So I'm glad I'm glad you were able to do that.
3: Yeah. And the cool thing was, I, since I knew I was coming back, I decided I wanted to do something more than just my string rover. And I thought about it for about two weeks, came up with the dimensions for a PVC pipe rover. And this ended up being very well timed. I had my aunt buy the supplies from a larger town. She brought them to my parents' house where we had someone cut them to the correct dimensions. And then I show up and finish off with the silver material that we bought to cover it. And then it would it got done about I think a few hours before its debut.
0: That's awesome. So you were able to literally make a life-size curiosity that you could disassemble, toss in the trunk of your car, drive around, and then reassemble it wherever you were speaking at yep that sounds like a great spring break to be honest i am sitting here and I've got in the corner of my office I've still got the uh, Lego lunar lander, and it's still in its box because I haven't had time to build it so i I love projects like that where you're able to physically build a representation of something just because it's it's easier for audiences to visualize what you know what's on the surface of another planet
3: plus it can then uh sit up there or stand up next to me during the whole presentation. And then another thing that was new from the String Rover is inside of the PVC pipes KimCam, which again, is just made out of cardboard. We cut a hole in the front part of it. And now if you pull the eye, I use quotes around that. But if you pull the eye of it, a 23 foot red ribbon comes out. So I can now demonstrate the length of how far KimCam can actually shoot.
0: So it can shoot up to 23 feet then?
3: Uh, seven meters.
0: Seven meters. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was a little bit just more up close for that instrument. So that's cool to know that it's actually longer range.
3: Yeah. It's a lot farther than people expect. So that's why we decided to go with this new idea of having the ribbon stored inside the box until I'm ready to like pull it out.
0: Well, I mean, that's a, there's just so many things that, you know, you don't think about for that Rover. Like I just always assumed that the laser was a a couple inches away from whatever it was zapping. So the fact that you could go seven meters, you know, that 23, 20, 20 to 23 feet is just, I I think that's really cool.
3: (laughs) Normally we shoot about, uh, I think our range is we have to shoot more than seven feet away from the Rover, but Yeah, if that's the case, then our range is roughly 7 to 23 feet.
0: As you're finishing up your doctoral degree, what's something that, you know, you hope to be able to communicate to the public and to students?
3: I guess it kind of depends on the age of the student and where they're located at. For rural Kansas, I specifically want them to know that there are more jobs out there than what you see in your daily life and that you are just as capable as any other kid out there, even if they grew up next to a science museum. Mm-hmm. Um, Specifically for girls, I want them to know that there are women out there right now doing exactly what I do, and sometimes even more impressive than what I do, and that they shouldn't be discouraged just because it's normally a male-dominated field.
0: Definitely. Well, and that's something that, you know, is great about social media is so many people are able to share the stories of what they're working on now. It's really opened up the the public's eyes to what the reality of the, you know, the STEM fields are nowadays. It's, it's not just, you know, stuffy lab coats in, you know, college, university or national labs. It's, it's students that are out there making a difference. And it's, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or you're a man, you're able to make these kind of contributions that push the boundaries of human knowledge.
3: Yeah. And just as A general thing. I always like to include slides at the very beginning that show this is me in high school that I graduated. This is in college. And then normally I'll include some like silly photos of me and be like, yes, I am a scientist, but I also have other hobbies or I can be goofy and silly too. I'm specifically trying to stress the point of being a scientist doesn't make you boring. Anyone can be a scientist with whatever hobbies you have.
0: Well, it's important to have those different aspects of your life. It makes you a little bit more well-rounded and it, I think it helps inform the work that you do in other areas of your life. So I think that's, it's, you know, important to have those passions and those, those hobbies. So, you know, Sarah, we there's, the summer is still very young. although here in Colorado, it's very young and we somehow managed to get a solstice snow Um Tell, you know, tell the listeners where uh, they can find you online and also where they can find, uh, you know, or come see a program that you're uh, giving over the summer.
3: So you can follow me on Twitter. I am Sarah Lamb at Astro Lamb, uh, lam is spelled L-A-M-M. Or you, if you're looking for specific events, then you can f- follow me on Facebook. It is Sarah Lamb hyphen solar system ambassador.
0: Cool. And I'll be sure to um, put links to both of those in the show notes. That way people can also click it um, if they're so inclined. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, you know, I hope to be able to see you out at the Cosmosphere sometime.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the show. We'd love if you would leave a review on iTunes. They're crucial to the success of podcasts so we'd appreciate it if you could take just a minute to leave a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Molnix.